episode of the EcoScoop. This week we're going to be looking at community activism with our guests Emmett McAleer, an independent councillor for Fermanagh and Omar District Council, and we also have with us Fidelma O'Kane, the secretary for the Save Our Sparrows group, which is a local pressure group dedicated to protecting local environment from the Canadian mining company Dalradian. The importance of community-led activism as a means of protecting local communities and their shared resources will become abundantly clear as we listen to this David and Goliath-style tale of a community organising to protect their environment from a large corporation. As usual, we're going to end our show with some good news from Ema Smith, and we really hope you enjoy this week's episode. Um, it's great to have you on with us. I think, firstly, if you could give our listeners a brief history of Dalradian Gold's exploration efforts in Fermanagh and Oma, and tell us a little bit about how you yourself got involved. Brilliant. Thanks very much for having me, Caelan. Um, yeah, so it was about 2009 when uh, Dalradian first came, came here. Um, initially, I suppose people weren't really aware or familiar of either the company or what their plans were, their long-term goals were. Um, as seems to be the the playbook that a lot of these extractive companies go by, the formative years in the local area were spent um, buying what's known as a social license. So they were keen to ingratiate themselves to the, I suppose, local sports clubs, local community groups, religious groups, um, and figures that they would have seen, figures of influence within the community. So that, I suppose, then when they're, when their more toxic plans became known, they would have already established a, a bit of a, a working group or a support base within the, the local area. Um, probably from up until maybe 20, I think about 2014, 2015, uh, a local group got together, a local number or a number of local people joined together and formed uh, Save Our Sparrows, which is, I suppose, kind of the, the overarching group at the minute, although there's probably between tw- t- 10 and 20 different groups now right across the Sparrows uh, in opposition to different gold mining virtues, uh, virtues, virtues in each of the local areas. Um, and that, uh, I suppose, they... I suppose it's still the maybe the largest group, but it's one that works right across the board with with all the local groups that have been set up since then. That was uh, twenty fourteen, probably uh, about I think it was about twenty sixteen twenty seventeen. Dalradian's uh, plans were becoming known, and they announced that they were planning to use cyanide in the processing of the gold. Um, and obviously, yeah, you don't have to be a chemist or a uh, really that into that kind of area to know the the dangers and the the I suppose the the threat that really is posed by a toxic substance like cyanide um, and that's really when I suppose big time the the local opposition kicked off that those maybe that were weren't as well informed or were kind of sitting back and on the sidelines maybe waiting to see what the 
what the possible there, what the future held, uh, they really took a stand at that stage. I think the the next meeting organised by Saver Sparrows after the announcement of the use of cyanide, there were probably two or three hundred people at it. Um, and unfortunately, I suppose for the person that had come along to to make a presentation, really they were sidetracked by questions and and really quite a deep anger about this threat that was being posed to the local area and the local community. Obviously. The, the part of Sperrins that we're talking about, it's an area of outstanding natural beauty. You have a couple of rivers there, the Owen Kilyu and the Owen Ray, which are an area of special scientific interest and a special area of conservation. You have the Black Bog, which is a Ramsar site, and you have protected species like the, the freshwater pearl mussel, um, which is the only endangered species on the island of Ireland. So, you know, when you have these designations and I suppose some of these sensitive areas of biodiversity and ecological sensitivity you would think that this really is a, a protected area it should be somewhere that this would not be a threat and not be a very real threat hanging over the people who live and work in this area but unfortunately that doesn't seem to be the case and um, since then Dalridian have subsequently amended their plans uh, twice I think the the last one was towards the end of 2020 and there's 33, I think, files of the, the planning application available for view in the, the County Hall in Tyrone. And whether you're in the Derry and Straban district area or the Fermanagh and Oma area, if you want to physically read the copy of those plans, you have to go to the, the, the County Hall in Tyrone to access them. And obviously with the current pandemic and social distancing and that, your opportunities to do that are, are fairly fairly limited. Um, so, you know, it's another difficulty in terms of access to information and in terms of communities being able to arm themselves with knowledge in advance of the the planned uh, public inquiry that the Minister for the Infrastructure has actually called. Um, and I, I suppose... Worryingly, in terms of these protected areas and these areas of special designation, they're all designated these sensitive areas under EU legislation. And now that we have gone into Brexit, there are serious concerns and serious worries about the long-standing uh, protection that will be afforded to these areas. Indeed, the Department for Economy, the Minerals and Petroleum branch came down to the council in Fermanagh to give a presentation. And it was quite shocking when they showed us a map of the north that 25% of the land is actually currently under prospecting license. Um, and not only that, but when you look at the areas that are under license, you have the likes of the, the Sperrins, AONB, and the tributaries to the Foil Riverway that are there. You have areas like the surrounding the Geo Park and around the Marble Arch in Fermanagh. You have uh, again the protected waterways of Loch Ney, and these are the areas I suppose first you would think, well, they're obviously going to be exempt, or or there won't be any such permissions granted because of the protections afforded to these areas. But they are actually the areas that are currently under threat, and it seems to be kind of a a reverse intuitiveness that's that's going on that. If these designated areas or these specially protected areas are the ones that are under threat, then, you know, nowhere is really safe because surely they should be the last places you would think of what's known as exploiting or extracting from. So um, hopefully that gives you a wee bit of background on it. Now, I could probably go on for 
quite some time on that, but um, hopefully that gives you a wee bit of background. No, that was a wonderful background. I think uh, you touched upon kind of the the like the asymmetry of knowledge between um, obviously Dalradian and um, members of the community, obviously not having access to to these like schematics and whatnot, and just kind of like um, analogous to that almost is. Um, how have you found it as an independent councillor uh, without the backing of, of a party machine behind you when you're trying to raise these issues at council meetings? Um, have you have, Obviously, with the existence of groups like Save Our Spurns, by virtue of their existence, it's clear that your constituents um, are very much behind this issue. But um, how much party backing, if, if any, is there for these issues? That, like That's a very good question. I think the, the interesting thing was that what started off probably with Save Our Spurns and those regular meetings prior to 2016 when there maybe were half a dozen to a dozen people at a, at a monthly meeting or whenever the meetings might have been convened, to think now that a number of years down the line, there are almost 40,000 objections recorded on the, the planning portal to this planning application, making it, I suppose, the most objected to planning application either north or south in the history of this island. So, what has been achieved to date is nothing short of phenomenal. And again, when I'm talking about Saver Spurns, you have to I have to also mention and give great credit to the, the Greencastle People's Office. And that's another local setup and a local community initiative that was taken whereby a, a number of caravans are actually on site where uh, Dalradian are planning their their waste dump. Um and they have been on site now for over three years now. They've surpassed a thousand days on site there and i think what they have done is nothing short of commendable it's it's inspirational it's admirable and the amazing thing about this is that it's something that started off within like a fairly remote fairly small community but it's grown such legs that you know they've had visitors from right across the globe they've linked in with groups like friends of the earth and a number of other groups across the north and across the island um, like Zero Waste Northwest up in Derry, they've linked in with Rare and Ross Trevor and uh, Stop the Drill up in, in Antrim and obviously the fracking groups then across Fermanagh and, and Antrim or the anti-fracking groups I should say and the the threat of exploration doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to like it's, it is like a, a growing concern and a growing threat no matter where you're from and no matter, I suppose, what part of the country you're in, that there is some sort of threat to your local environment. So whilst these community groups and these environmental groups are kind of working together and, and seeking strength and solace from each other and celebrating each other's victories, it's interesting to note that there seems to be quite a good understanding amongst a lot of these concerns amongst other independent councillors and I know in the run up to my election and, and prior to me, I suppose, announcing that, that I was going to stand as an independent, we had spoke to a number of uh, independent councillors in Derry and Straban Council who would have been very supportive of the campaign. Mm-hmm. And and since my election, there are a number of the, the independent candidates in Fermanagh and Oma who are very clued in to mining and to fracking and would have, you know, they would see the comparisons between the two and they would be uh, very supportive in terms of in terms of working more as a unit in, in terms of that. Obviously, when I was canvassing, I think the, the massive benefit and and a I would I would have said this on the doorsteps when we were going around canvassing, is that because you're an independent, you're solely responsible to the people of your constituency. Whereas if you're a member of a party, 
ultimately you're responsible to your party leader, to headquarters, be that in Belfast or Dublin or wherever that may be. Whereas if you're an independent candidate, you're solely responsible to the people who have elected you, the people of your area. And I think that's something that I draw massive inspiration from. Obviously, there are difficulties when it comes to making proposals, making uh, bringing motions to council. And I suppose that's something that we have experienced difficulty with because the unfortunate thing is that whilst on the face of it, some parties may say that they're fully supportive of the local community and they're fully supportive of these uh, environmental groups, when it comes to actually taking the action within the, the chambers of council, that doesn't always seem to be the case. Um, fortunately, between the the smaller parties and the the independents in there, there are just enough of us to uh, bring a call in or bring a to, to hit this 15% quota that means we need to that's needed to uh, call in a decision or to to argue our corner and normally if there's something that we are proposing within council we would have somebody there to second us now that's not to say that we're always successful in that and I know that looking back through the records probably we've been unsuccessful a lot more times than we have been successful but still there have been some like hugely important victories that we have got and, and probably one of the most notable, notable in terms of this campaign is the uh, assertion that the council has to declare the green road a public right of way. Um, this is a historic route that would have been used during the flight of the earls. Um, so, you know, this is uh, something that's gone back centuries as part of our history and our culture, part of the really the the identity of the area that we were born and brought up in um, and Dalradian wanted this road abandoned because this is where they're planning to site their their toxic waste dump um, fortunately we were in there to fight the corner and I would I would definitely say we've since since there's been the introduction of the independent councillors and I think as well since the the offshoot of the advent of the the live streaming of council meetings now that we are meeting socially distanced, that these meetings are all being broadcast via YouTube live, that people are tuning in and they're more aware of what their councillors are actually doing. I know whenever, again, when I was canvassing, Stormont uh, wasn't up and running at that stage. Um, obviously in West Tyrone here, our MP is an abstentionist MP, so what I was saying to people on the doorsteps was if you want a political voice, you need to elect a councillor that's going to speak to the issues that you're concerned with and really going to have your best interest at hearts. And obviously the frustration with Stormont and everything else that was going on, that resonated on the doorsteps. Um, but I think, you know, what, what I find is that if you're genuine, if you're sincere, you can attract people onto your side of an argument. But I think the unfortunate thing or the flip side of that is that there are obviously people who may be sympathetic to what you're saying, but because they have been given instruction by party leadership or party headquarters or whoever it might be, that they can't support you when it comes to taking a decision or voting on a certain issue in council. I yeah. probably blathered on a wee bit too long there, but yeah. No, it was great. It was great. There are there are advantages to the, that sort of autonomy that you would have being an independent. Um, I think more more generally speaking as well, you touched about uh, upon people's kind of like apathy with Stormont and whatnot. And I think um, obviously Stormont and the likes of Westminster and whatnot will have their own policies regarding climate change. 
So what, what can be done at like the local level in terms of the council level or in the community regarding the existential threat of climate change? Because I think too often people feel powerless as individuals and even like on a smaller scale. So just in your own experience as an independent councillor, what, what kind of initiatives um, have you been involved in and what kind of initiatives can people get involved in? Surely, well, um, there's a number of different committees and groups that you can apply to get on or, or seek to join whenever you're elected as councillor. I think at the minute I'm on maybe about 15 or so. But mm-hmm. again, norm- the interesting thing about that is normally it's based on party strength if you can't agree or if agreement isn't reached. And I suppose this is an ongoing issue in, in our local council that last summer, uh, whilst all our committees are, there's four major committees, they're all party members, so every councillor is a member of them. Uh, the Austria Unionist Party actually sought to reduce the numbers uh, of each of those groups down to 13, which would have obviously excluded the independents from from those groups and meant our voices weren't being heard. Thankfully, that was defeated. Um, I would be a bit worried that we our AGM is upcoming uh, this June, this May June time, and I think it could be back on the table at that stage, um, which obviously is quite concerning. But one of the groups that I'm part of and and I was keen to get on is a climate change resilience group, which is one of the groups in the Fermanagh and Oma area. And I think it has been fairly proactive and I would give credit to the majority of the members that are on that as well. Um because we've we have recently brought out our own draft climate and sustainability document to try and tackle this issue locally. And as you say, it was out for consultation and and you do get feedback saying, you know, this is this problem is bigger than us and how are we going to make a change by doing doing something different in, in a rural place like Toronto or Fermanagh. But I think like anything, change has to start with with yourself and you have to, what does it be, the change that you want to see? Uh, as corny as that is, like the, that's true enough. And if you leave someone else to fight your battles while you're on a, a road to nowhere there, really. Um, in terms of like what the council has been doing itself so far, before we had, I suppose, split up in terms of the socially distanced meetings, we were very keen to get uh, rid of single-use plastics, and that was something we were working on within council buildings themselves. And even the likes of, um, you know, the plastic cups that you would have at water fountain, stuff like that, plastic cutlery in the canteen, we had phased out the use of that across the council. And even, I know we had a couple of meetings where, whilst I was trying not to do it, a picking or tackling councillors or, or members of the senior management team who were sitting at the top table with plastic water bottles in front of them when we had a, a water cooler down the back of the room. Thankfully, that's something that people have bought into now and you would see or you would have seen prior to the, the social distance meetings, people bringing their own water bottles with them. Again, what we're moving to do now as well is um, establish a, a set up a water fountain in both Oma and Enniskillen in the t- the two main county towns in our district area so that people can bring their own water bottles with them and fill them rather than having to go and buy a bottle of water, uh, which I don't know, the, the idea of selling water or selling plastic bottles of water in a country that rains as much as this is one that always escaped me and I can't, if someone had have pitched that to me on Dragon's Den, I would have chase them but obviously there is there is huge money on it and another issue just recently that uh, i know being from a rural area you're kind of grew up with this 
love this graph for your own area and you you want to protect it and you want to look after it and like since i've been a child one thing that's always really stuck in my throat is people dumping rubbish out of cars as they're driving through rural areas and i know it happens in towns as well so it's not just isolated to that and and thankfully like i'm from a a weave a wee place called Craigan that would have a very strong community ethos and a great community association there and some of my earliest memories would have been out on litter picks with the local community group and that's something that still happens but i think you know weiss is great to have these community initiatives it shouldn't fall on the community to deal with this obviously it's more than just a council issue but it's an educational thing or a societal thing where people feel that it's okay to dump a mcdonald's packet out of the window or throw a coke tin out or whatever it might be um just from talking to a constituent recently one of the issues and another concern is they as long as the the single-use plastics you have the you know the polystyrene takeaway uh, containers so again this is something that we've included in the draft document that we're trying to phase that out in conjunction with local businesses and takeaways that we can really see you know a, a change to if you're taking away something away or you you know obviously at present you can't sit in and have a meal in a restaurant that there are biodegradable or recyclable alternatives and and i suppose then on the bigger scale um a thing that we are working in connection with other councils is looking towards setting up our own uh, recycling facilities uh so taking that idea of um, maybe removing the, the privatisation element and, and restoring some sort of nationalisation to recycling. And again, through that, you're looking at recycling less commonly recycled goods. Like I know a couple of ones that have been brought to my attention are things like your your instant coffee pods and, you know, the plastic film that whilst it is recyclable, a lot of recycling facilities don't actually recycle those materials. So there's works in the pipeline, but obviously there's, you know, there's a massive amount still to, to do there. Yeah, no, fantastic. That's a, it's very encouraging to see the work that's already going on. Uh, no, but absolutely there, there is more that needs done. Um, thanks very much for coming on. I think that's kind of us out of, out of time. Um, just, just before you go, is there anywhere that you can, you would like to signpost people who are, who are less than I want to get involved um, particularly with uh, Dalrady and gold mines, and is there anywhere they can go uh, to voice their opposition? Yeah, um, absolutely. So uh, I would say if you want to contact me, by all means, give me a shout, Councillor Emmett McAleer. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter. Um, my email address is emmett.mcaleer at fermanoma.com and my contact details are all online, so feel free to give me a shout if there's anything you want to follow up on. The Ideally, or the the best places to go in terms of the, the Dalradian campaign are Save Our Sparrows again on Facebook or Twitter or saveoursparrows at outlook.com as the email address if you want to contact someone from, from there. And and the other place I would recommend as well is the Greencastle People's Office or GPO. And again, it's found on Facebook and on Twitter. And they actually post the blog every day, just updating, you know, what's what the events have happened or are giving a wee bit more information on on what the, the current state of the story is there. It's you know, it's an inspiring read and it's it's always something that that I would check in on, on a daily basis. So I think you'll get every other site really you need from between Save Our Sparrows and the Greencastle People's Office, so they would be the two I would point you to. That's fantastic. Thanks very much. And yeah, thanks again for coming on. Um, very much appreciated.
No worries at all. Hey, thank you for taking the time. No worries. All the best. Have a nice day. So we're here now with Fidelma O'Kane, who is the secretary for the pressure group Steve R. Sparrins. This is a group formed in response to proposals by Canadian mining company Dalradian Gold back to mine for gold deposits onto the Sparrin mountain range and is composed of members of the local community who fear pollution and disruption to local industries were operations to go ahead. Uh, Fidelma, it's great to have you on the show. We spoke briefly to Councillor Emmett McAleer about the history of Dalradian Gold's plans to mine under the Sparrins. Um, as a secretary for Save Our Sparrins yourself, mm-hmm. I was hoping you might be able to begin by letting our listeners know a little more about why the group was set up and what it's done to date. Um, well, we formed and we formally set up in uh, J- June 2015. And uh, we were aware of Dalradian in the area from about late 2013 and were a bit uh, concerned. One of our members um, was uh, had some information about gold mining because he had lived in the States and he was concerned and, and told us, you know, it wasn't good for a rural area and especially a water supply and the air. And uh, so we began to sort of look into it and we were a small number of us at that stage initially were meeting on a monthly basis and then um, in January 2016, Dalradian announced in the public press that they were in t- they had got a site at Greencastle and that they were intending to have a gold mine and a cyanide processing plant. And that really struck fear into the heart of the community And because everybody knows how poisonous cyanide is. And uh, so then, uh, you know, we, we held public meetings and people, you know, wanted to find out more. And, even though we did a lot of research ourselves and made contacts with people in other countries and produced information leaflets, we always encourage people to do their own research. You know, you don't have to take like my word for it or anybody else's. Just find out for yourself and the information is readily available. I mean, we have never found one good news story about gold mining in any country in the world. And that's a shocking indictment. I'm sure uh, proponents of gold mining, and I, um, I believe uh, talking to talking to Emma McAleer as well, uh, particularly in the in, in that constituency, are um, are in the minority. But such proponents would put forward the uh, supposed benefits of gold mining uh, being like the economic prosperity to the area. I know uh, already and promised uh, jobs in the in the region of like 40k average. Um, what 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 would Steve Arsfarn say in response to those sorts of those sorts of claims? We, we, yeah, it's this is what's promoted in Dalradian of two PR companies, not one but two, and this yep. is all the time they're promoting uh, all these jobs, and they have name like sort of um, there's imaginary jobs. I can't remember the name of them, but uh, you know, inferred maybe it is. Um, know that so if you buy if a gold miner buys something, a sandwich in the local shop, that's creating a job in the shop. So they, they have, a, you know, they, they can exaggerate the, the jobs. But what we're saying is they don't look at the jobs that will be displaced here, like farming, fishing, tourism. And we, that's what we want, sustainable jobs that will be here. Gold mining is a short term thing. Once they take the resource out of the ground, it's gone, it's gone forever. And we're left with a mess, poisoned water, poisoned air, poisoned land and people's health affected. And 
you know, that like it's short term gain for a few. And the other thing is, Dal Readings keeps saying it's you no know, jobs for people in this poor area. Well, we don't regard ourselves as poor people in the Sparrows, although Dal Readings have referred to us as um, welly wearing sheep farmers, their chief executive had that in the Sunday business post to the Financial Times. We had to withdraw it because uh, we, uh, you know, took him up on it. But really, at the end of the day, um, uh, as someone said to me, to be a custodian of the land is a more worthy job than to be mining for gold. So, um, you know, the, the other thing is that gold mining throughout the world, we've learned from other countries, they usually fly people in and fly people out. Mining is a more specialist industry. There's no history of mining here. So we don't have miners all waiting to get these jobs. And so they usually fly them in and fly them out and they have cater for them on site. All their recreation is provided on site and it really may not have much prosperity for the area at all. And the other thing is employment law uh, doesn't allow them to uh, employ people on the basis of their address. They can't turn around and say, oh, we'll only have people from County Tyrone or County Derry or Northern Ireland. It'll be you know, people qualified for their jobs if they ever get planning permission. Absolutely. So what you're saying is that um, the, the injection to the local economy is negligible when you think of the negative externalities that damages uh, other industries such as agriculture and tourism and whatnot. Um, I, I wanted to bring up, actually, um, you touched upon um, the, the involvement of cyanide, and I know um, recently that was that was overturned. Um, so Dalradian have conceded not to use cyanide. Um, have you noticed, have you noticed at all that that's, um, in any way affected the kind of trajectory of your movement at Save Our Spurns? Has that kind of taken the pressure off or if anything, has that kind of like spurred you on further? I think that, um, okay, it was in the autumn of 2019 that Dalradian, when they uh, sort of produced their first addendum to their planning application, which was more pages than the 10,000 pages they had in their first planning application, um, they said they weren't going to use cyanide on site but they were going to uh, export the ore overseas for cyanidation uh, there. We don't see what country it's going to. So the, we have a lot of uh, concerns about that. Why should we inflict such you know, a poisonous uh, process on another country who may not have the regulations or may not have the people or the, the means to oppose it? And secondly, uh, we, we actually don't believe Dalradian, that we think that if they get planning permission for the gold mine here, that they will go back then and say that uh, we want to apply for cyanide processing plant here because they haven't removed the processing plant from their planning application. And furthermore, their, uh, their financial, their feasibility study says it would not be financially viable without processing it on site. So that and they have retained that feasibility study. It's still in, they've done a further December 2020 um, addendum, a second addendum. Again, mm -hmm. twice as many pages as the very first one. And um, in it, they have retained that feasibility study where they say it's not financially viable uh, to, uh, you know, to export the ore and that. So they want to use cyanide here. And in their initial application, they talked about using 20 ton of cyanide a week. Uh, you know, it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah. And I mean, some of their, um, their directors 
uh, told us cyanide was no more poisonous than amant. And one of our people challenged Patrick Anderson, the chief executive, and um, he threw down a gauntlet to him and he said, okay, Patrick, I'm willing to eat a handful of almonds and you take a teaspoon of cyanide and we'll see who comes off the worst. But needless to say, Patrick didn't accept the challenge. Yeah, that's fantastic. That, that is absolute, that's absolute truth. That is stark. Um, I just I was wondering quickly if we could scratch beneath the hood slightly and um, actually explore the, the environmental impacts of, of mining. Um, I know the area is uh, rich in radon gas, um, and I know there's a plethora of other problems that would come with mining. I was wondering if you could speak slightly to the actual environmental effects of the mining itself. Well, the, we, we repeat the, the water and the air, the two main things, okay, that we need to survive. We need uh, cl clean water and fresh air. So um, they're talking about a mine that will go 900 metres into the earth. And so once that's 440 metres below the water table. So if you can imagine that the water table then will obviously be lowered, it will lower all the rivers and aquifers that are, and there's numerous ones here in the area. Um, okay, and our rivers are here and our streams are the headwaters of the River Foyle, that you know, is an area of special scientific interest because of salmon. Our two local rivers, the Own Kalu and the Own Ray, are, are special areas of conservation because of the presence of freshwater pearl mussels. And these little creatures are Ireland's only globally endangered species. And we are supposed to have the biggest population of freshwater pearl mussels in Europe. They're supposed to be, it's a Natura 2000 site. There's special protections for these little creatures. They can live up to 200 years and they purify the water. But any, they need absolute clean water to survive. And any poison, any toxicity, any sediment even going into the water can clog, clog them and kill them. And it's, it's shocking that, you know, Dalradian would be thinking of discharging their poison, their contaminated water into these rivers. Um, furthermore, in terms of the water, they recently put in, uh, applied for two water abstraction licenses. And we didn't know about these until just in the last month. And in the water abstraction licenses, they have applied for 495 million gallons of water every day to abstract that from the peatland around their site. And every day, in the year for up to 20 years, almost half a million gallons of water per day. Now, what that will also do to the bog and the peatland that is the biggest store of carbon and these times of, car of climate change and all, that's another issue. Um, mm -hmm. It also has implications for the streams and the rivers because if, the if they're abstracting the water, the water will not be flowing into the, the streams and the rivers and all they'll all go dry and will have poison as well. Then the air, Dalradian are, are talking about a dry stack facility, and I call it a toxic waste rock mountain. It'll be 54 metres high, which is 17 storeys. Now it's huge, it's got a footprint of 28 hectares. I can't even imagine, you know, the size of it, but it's so big. And they said that whenever, you see, whenever the mine, they took out a lot of rock because the gold comes in little sparkles or little veins or, you know, it's a faults. So it's not just like nuggets or big lumps of gold. And so they have to take out a huge amount of rock. 
They say that even for enough gold for a wedding ring, the minimum is 20 ton of waste rock comes out for that small amount of gold. So it's huge, the waste rock. And that waste rock, when it's taken out, it'll be crushed to the consistency of a fine of a fine sand or dust. That's what Dan Radian see in their planning application. Mm-hmm. They will they said now in their latest um, addendum that they will use um, a sort of some sort of um, pr- a process. They don't go into the details of what chemicals they will use, but they will remove uh, the ore that contains the gold, and that will be for export. But the rest of the waste rock and it crushed to the fine consistency of sand will be put in the in the dump, the dry stack facility. Now stacked really high, 17 storeys, on top of a mountain crock and boy hill. Um, we, were, we were speaking to a Finnish biochemist, uh, Yari Natunen, and he lives beside a gold mine in Finland called Katila. And he did a study on the fine particulate matter that blows from the dry stack facility. And is very concerned that the 2.5 particulate matter would blow up to 60 kilometres, was into more or less every county in the north, as well as Donegal and Monaghan. We, we, we did a map and put a radius around Greencastle here in Tyrone, and it reached up to Derry City and over into Donegal, down to Monaghan. Uh, you know, it's unbelievable, you know, the, the extent of it. It sounds it sounds truly stark. Like a, there, it's, it's definitely a very a very bleak situation that you've painted. Um, what can what, what can be done? Obviously, save our spines is um is a pressure group putting pressure on. But um, in terms of like community activism, what what um what, what is being done, and what like what what in your opinion has to be done to just circumvent this? Well, the, we over the last five years, really, we have done we have done a massive. You know, when we reflect, we've done a massive amount of work. We've had about fifty public meetings. We've produced several leaflets. Um, we have uh, helped other groups set up. There's now about 10, at least 10 anti-mining groups in the counties Tyrone and Derry. There's some in Donegal, there's Monaghan and Cavan, down in Connemara as well, because gold mining companies are coming in. They're being invited in by the government, both north and south. Here, they're being given tax incentives and told Ireland is open for mining business. So we've, we've elected an anti-gold mining councillor uh, who was the first councillor elected in mid Tyrone in May 2019. And it is really great to get him into the council to know, let us know what's going on there and to speak for us. Um, that we have had, I've taken a judicial review against uh, a discharge consent that was granted to Dalradian to put nine heavy metals, arsenic, mercury, lead, chromium, cadmium, etc., into the river, the Onkalu River. And it was squashed in, in November 2019. There's another man taking a judicial review on human rights grounds at the moment. We've had protests, we've had pickets, um, we've had direct action and we've had indirect action. So I think that uh, I know the, the saying, there's in, is it lots of ways to skin a cat. <laughs> well, uh, we <laughs> there's lots of, you know, we, we just have to keep going on all fronts any actions that people can think of. And I think we think people power. I know a lot of people say, oh, it's David and Goliath. This is a big company with money. They have two PR companies. They've had over 100 meetings with government departments to help pave the way 
to you know get their application through and yet here we are three over three years on three and a half years on and they still haven't got planning permission the minister for infrastructure has announced there will be a public inquiry we will oppose Dalridian all of the way and I mean I think at the end of the day people par over 37,000 objections to their planning application. That is absolutely unheard of. And we want to pass it on to our children and our grandchildren uh, as pristine as it was given to us. Definitely very encouraging and it speaks to the power of collective action when people can band together. Um, yeah. we're, we're almost out of time here, unfortunately, but I just wanted to ask, is there any way that our listeners can get involved if, uh, oh. if people hear, hear your plea and feel uh, oh, yeah. empowered to get, to get involved? Where can, we, where can we signpost them to? Oh, we'd be delighted if people would get involved. If they would look up our Facebook page, Save Our Spurns, we have over 7,000 followers in it. And um, we would we have lots of objections to send in because Dalradian have applied for water abstraction, they've applied for three more discharge consents, they have a second addendum, they have an updated mine waste management plan. So we're doing objections. We're looking for people who are specialists and geology and engineering and water and air to help us to prepare for the public inquiry. So uh, save our spares at outlook.com if people want to send us an email, if they go onto our Facebook page and we'll direct give them, you know, the, we'll give them, um, you know, tell them what we want them to help us with. And we would ask them also to lobby their politicians every party. I mean, that's the good thing about our independent councillor. Uh, this area traditionally was a green, a green like sort of Republican area, but not anymore. People have joined together cross community and people are fighting this because we're all, we all need the clean water and the fresh air. And I think it's great. And I think that's why the traditional political parties um, fear us because they don't want the people to be united. They like to keep it orange and green and uh, they don't want to, you know, they want to keep along those lines, whereas people now know what's important. And I think it's been reinforced this past year with COVID pandemic. People have got to appreciate nature and their health and their health is their wealth. And I think that's the most important thing. It's not about money or gold. That's fantastic. Thanks very much, Fidelma. Um, very much appreciate you appearing on the show. we're going to end this week's episode by looking at some good news and with me I've got Emo who's going to talk to us about some good news that's happened over the last couple of weeks. So Emo, there's obviously been a lot of pressure on businesses to make changes um, which are more environmentally friendly um, which is really positive and we've started to see some businesses respond to that and um, specifically there's been a change that was announced this week um, aimed at reducing plastic waste. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Of course. So um, one good thing that we're seeing now is, as you said, big consumer brands kind of responding to pressure from consumers. Um, and we're starting to see that now as well in the cosmetics and hygiene kind of brands. So this week, um, Garnier um, have recently just um, extended their product line of shampoo bars to Tesco's um, Boots and Superdrug. So we use like over 520 shampoo bottles every year. Um, but another way to, as we talked about last week, is cutting down on plastic waste. So shampoo bars are a brilliant way to do this. The L'Oreal Garnier ones come in um, a cardboard box. And so there's no pla pal oh, sorry, plastic packaging with it. 
They're made using about 94% plant-based um, products in it. And there's four different types of bars. Um, so if you're kind of dry hair, oily hair, there's kind of options out there for you. Um, they last up to about two months and they're about as foaming as a normal bar of shampoo. You can get them in other shops as well. It's not just Garnier who do it. Um, there's other shops such as Lush and Boots do a similar bar in their Blue Planet range, which are also plastic free and vegan and carbon neutral as well. So shampoo bars are a brilliant way to do this and they last about two months and you can get wee boxes for them too, cork, tin. So it's a really good way just to kind of pull back from plastic, but it is, it's a nice way to see that big brands are reacting to consumer pressure to become more environmentally friendly and sustainable. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's exactly it. It's, it's really encouraging to see businesses respond to consumer pressures and consumer demand for something other than a product that comes in plastic and is full of chemicals. Um, so Amazon's another really big player that's been making some changes to its business to kind of put forward a more environmentally friendly foot. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that as well? Of course. Um, so at the minute, Amazon are rolling out electric fans um, across the UK, Europe and North America. They have a climate pledge to be carbon neutral by 2025. Um, whether we'll see that or not, um, we hopefully will. But one step they are doing is rolling out these electric vans and they're working with, I think it's Mercedes-Benz and Rivian to design the vans. Um, they're already been rolled out and last year there was 22 million deliveries of packages um, by Amazon using electric vans. Um, and I'd say this is set to grow in the future as well. Already in the UK and Northern Ireland, there are plenty of stations using them. So there's electric van kind of charging points at their stations in places such as Wembley, Exeter and even Belfast who have 50 of these vans and their charging ports to go with them. So it's a good way to kind of, I guess, um, mitigate and reduce um, air pollution from the transport delivery. and like deliveries, yeah. Because <laughs> um, there is such a big demand in it, especially there's been a big increase during the pandemic of people sitting at home and needing products that they can't get in the supermarket. So Amazon has been a big player in that, um, which is quite encouraging to see the electric fans anyways. Um, they've also introduced plans as well to add 26 wind and solar energy products across Europe. Um, so this is quite good as well. Um, hopefully we'll see more of this from other companies too, as Amazon is such a big company at the minute and has grown so much over the past year or so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Amazon for me, especially during lockdown, I cringe a little bit every time I use it, but I have come to rely on it quite a lot just because a lot of the shops have been closed. I think it's definitely really positive to see Amazon take these steps um, to reduce their footprint. But having said that, I think we should always stress that the most eco-conscious way of shopping is always to try and buy local where you can and make businesses like Amazon sort of your last resort for those items that you absolutely cannot get another way. Um, obviously, there's a really good positive, more global developments, but locally, there's also been some positive developments, particularly regarding peat harvesting. And I know I've had a really big learning curve on peat harvesting because I didn't really know enough about it. But National Geographic's called it the forgotten fossil fuel. Do you want to tell us a little bit about peat harvesting and why it's so negative? Yeah, of course. So peat harvesting is kind of a big thing in Ireland, I guess. Um, it's So peat is a fuel, like it is a fossil fuel, though you wouldn't quite think it. It's more like kind of mud, I guess, whenever you first take it out of the ground. Um, but what's 
so bad, I guess, about peat is it takes thousands and thousands of years to build up, but it also provides a big habitat space for wildlife. Um, peat takes about, it's about one millimeter per year to build up. So you can imagine that's really, really slow. And another thing about it as well is that it's almost one of the most damaging fuels, if not the most damaging fossil fuel. It generates less energy per ton than coal does, but produces a higher CO2 emission per unit than coal, making it much less efficient as well. Um, it's done locally and commercially throughout Ireland. Um, families who kind of cut turf and use it for burning fires at home, but also Bordner Mona is a kind of a famous enough company throughout Ireland and the UK who'd make peat briquettes. So they're kind of solid bricks of peat basically that would be sold throughout the UK. Um, but a good thing that's come out of this is um, in last summer, they suspended um, peat harvesting in Ireland. Um, Bordemona did that is. Um, but this year they've announced that they are stopping that altogether and instead moving towards biomass and being more sustainable, but also um, protecting peatlands rather than harvesting peat. Um, so I think they've they've put aside anyways 115 million euros for peatland restoration. And the Irish government as well have put 36 million euros towards a just transition in the Midlands, which is where a lot of the peat harvesting by Borden and Mona would take place. Mm. So that's a really good step um, in doing that because also peat, peatlands and bogs are a big carbon sink as well. So they're kind of better left untouched. So the less we touch them, the better and restoring them is kind of a good way as well to protect biodiversity and maintain it. Yeah, no, definitely. It seems like an all-round kind of winner in terms of maintaining those carbon sinks, which are obviously really essential, and also not using a, a fuel that's quite damaging, but also, by the sounds of it, not very efficient at all. And it's also really positive to see that, you know, they've made this decision, but they've also considered a just transition for it, which I think is really important when these kind of decisions are being made, that, you know, the implications of it and for communities that rely on those jobs are considered. So that's really positive as well. Um, Right. I think that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much, Emma, for coming on and informing us about all these amazing new developments. Thank you to all our guests who came on today. And thank you to Steph Roberts, who puts this lovely episode together for you every week. Um, join us next week.